Welcome to the Thinking Practitioner Podcast, a podcast where we dig into the fascinating issues, conditions, and quandaries in the massage and manual therapy world today. I'm Whitney Lowe. And I'm Till Luca. Welcome, Welcome to, to the, the Thinking, Thinking Practitioner. Hi, this is Whitney Lowe, and ABMP is proud to sponsor the Thinking Practitioner Podcast. ABMP membership gives massage therapists and body workers exceptional liability insurance, numerous discounts, and great resources to help you thrive, like their ABMP podcast, which is available at abmp.com forward slash podcasts or wherever you happen to listen. Even if you're not a member, you can get free access to Massage and Bodywork Magazine, where Till and I are frequent contributors, and get special offers for Thinking Practitioner listeners at abmp.com forward slash thinking. So welcome, everyone. This is Whitney Lowe, and uh, I'm here by myself as an interviewer today. Till is off this uh, episode, and I've got two fine gentlemen from Canada that are going to be joining me here today. So I would like to say uh, hello and welcome to Jamie Johnson and Eric Purvis from British Columbia. And uh, thanks so much, guys, for coming to hang out with us today on Thinking Practitioner. Oh, we appreciate you having us. Can't thank yeah. you enough. Yeah, Great. Thanks, so, it's an honor to be here. Yeah. So let me um, get a little bit of background. Tell me a little bit about you guys. You have a wonderful podcast that you do. You're doing some wonderful publishing work, uh, collating articles, teaching stuff. Tell me a little bit about um, what you guys are doing. Uh, Jamie, why don't you go first and then uh, we'll hear from Eric as well. Sure. Um, so I graduated from massage therapy school in December of 2010 and got certified in 2011. Um, and in addition to just working in private practice, I've been working in sport with uh, different sports teams and <clears throat> athletes throughout my career. So I uh, started out with uh, our local junior A hockey team and spent seven years with them spent one year as the head trainer and medical director with them, uh, spent a year with Rugby Canada with the Men's Sevens program, and then for the last six years I've been with Hockey Canada and the Women's Development program. Uh, so in addition to all that private practice and sport, um, been had my blog, the MTDC, the Massage Therapist Development Centre for I think I've been doing it for six years now. And then uh, a couple of years ago, Eric and I started teaching together. So we teach a course about pain science and therapeutic exercise. And then uh, earlier this year, we decided to start doing a podcast together. So we, we launched that. So it's been a busy number of years. Yeah, wonderful. And it's excellent podcast. I would certainly recommend it to people. And that is the Massage Therapy Development Initiative podcast. So yes, for sure, take a listen over there. Yeah. And Eric, tell us a little bit about your background history. Yeah, so I've been a massage therapist since 2006. Uh, I own a clinic in, in town here. It's a multidisciplinary clinic. Um, I've had that since whew, for about 11 years now. Uh, so in, in addition to practice, uh, I've been teaching continuing education uh, to massage therapists since about 2015. Uh, that, and that first started, uh, the first contract I had doing that was with an, uh, an organization here called Pain VC. Uh, and they're basically a government funded organization uh, for basically education, they provide education to other healthcare providers about uh, best practices for managing chronic pain, as well as they have uh, part of their organization is actually providing resources and support to people that are living with uh, chronic pain. Uh, so I started with them and I've kind of expanded since then and, and done some of my own things as well, including teaching with, with Jamie. Um, we've been teaching our course, I think, since 2018. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and a few years ago, I decided, hey, I don't have enough things to do, so let's go do some graduate work. So I went to, yeah. I went to uh, do a master's degree at UBC in uh, rehabilitation science, and yeah, and so I've been basically 
trying to balance my life with uh, all these things uh, the last few years. And uh, I still haven't found that balance yet, but uh, it's, that's part of the, that's part of life. It's elusive for all of us. Yeah. 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 I, was, I was listening to one of these business podcasts sometime recently and somebody was saying like that whole work life balance thing, mm -hmm. that's a load of crap. Yeah, <laughs> that's not a thing. This is not a thing. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, I yeah. think for so many of us too, that, you know, especially a lot of people in this field, you know, get kind of, passionately obsessed about the work that we're doing. It's kind of hard to, to find and maintain that balance sometimes. So how did you guys hook up with each other? What, what brought you together to start teaching together? I think I, I think it was cause I was teaching a first aid course cause I teach a bunch of first aid courses for massage therapists and I, and Eric took the course. I think that was the first time we met. Uh, I think so. Yeah. That's yeah. Right. And then we kind of just started hanging out and then he got me addicted to going to the San Diego pain summit and, mm -hmm. um, and we're just spending a lot of time together and, uh, we kind of came to the conclusion or, or it was my opinion anyways. And when I approached Eric with it, he agreed that um, we don't do enough therapeutic exercise uh, as yeah. massage therapists. So that's kind of my passion. And he knew so much about the pain science and he educated me. And I think I educated him and we came together and said, well, let's put this course together. Yeah. Sounds, sounds excellent. Yeah. It sounds like you're bringing those strengths together to the different yeah. things that you're doing. Yeah. Cool. So, well, I want to, um, I want to kind of t focus a bit of our attention today on, on looking at some some comparative things about the profession world in both of our different countries, because I always think it's valuable to look at different perspectives. And, and, you know, we have listeners all over the world, so some of this is relevant for some of the people outside of both these countries as well. But um, I can only speak sort of from what I know here in the U.S., and you guys are obviously very well um you know, knowledgeable about what's happening there in, in the Canadian world. And I think there's there's a lot of relevance in some other areas. But you know, I, my passion is really as an educator. So I've watched a lot of what has happened in British Columbia over the years. And I think you all have really led the way in a lot of uh, educational innov uh, innovations. Uh, in particular, you know, your move to start using um, competencies for your entry-level training requirements compared to, to hours. Because if I remember correctly, British Columbia was at like a 3,000-hour requirement. Is that right? A number of years back. Yeah. And then they... Yeah moved to dropping the hours and going to competencies. Is that correct? Correct. Yeah. 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 So what's your take on, on like the, uh, impact or effect of that? Have you been able to, do you think measure yet? The, does that have any, uh, impact or on the quality of the uh, practitioners that are coming out or has that, you know, been a hard adjustment for people getting off, getting off the clock, so to speak? That's a loaded question. <laughs> yeah. uh, I'll, I can start with like a whole podcast. <laughs> yeah, that's a whole podcast. Right? Uh, yeah. I'll, st I'll start with this one. Uh, so I think, I think it's an, in a synopsis, it was the wrong move. Mm -hmm. Because what ended up happening when you went from the hours-based program to a competency-based program, it basically became a, a rush to the bottom as quick as uh -huh. possible. So what the schools did is it used to be a seven semester program that was 3000 hours. Now 3000 hours is kind of irrelevant in the fact that if you have 3000 hours of stuff that's not good, then it's you know zero plus zero equals zero, right? Yeah. Uh, but but when they what they did is they got rid of a bunch of the material. They said, oh, we don't really need to know this because this isn't essential for our competencies. And so the, what they did is they reduced it from a seven semester program to a five semester program. So even though maybe the competencies were the same, you were pumping students out as fast as you could. And I would argue, and I know I'm not alone in this, and Jamie would probably agree, is that um, 
you really, I mean, maybe this is at least my, my experience in BC is going to be different than a lot of other people's experiences where the program already is really short anyway, was that people like they just, you don't have enough time to integrate the material. You don't have enough time to really kind of go through and, and interact with your, your classmates or with the public and go through your, you know, your clinical uh, mentorship or your clinical program that you have to go through. Like when you're working with the public, it just seems so rushed that I think that people are coming out. Uh, I would say not as prepared as they could be. I never want to say inadequate because there's lots of great therapists that I know that have come out of that program. But I think that you are running a risk of, just pushing people out into the public that might not have, mm, uh, they might not have all the skills necessary, not only technical skills, but also like maturity and, and cognitive and, and kind of reasoning skills to, to be as a, a effective as you could. Yeah. yeah. So, no. so is that kind of true across, like is that happened with multiple schools that they sort of yeah. did that whole process or was that just a few of them that kind of cut their programs back like that? I think uh, all of them. All did. of them. Oh, yeah. really? I think, or, huh. what is there, six schools across BC now? There's nine. Nine? Mm -hmm. Nine. I think wow. there's a tenth one coming. So there's, there, when we went to school, when I went to school, there was two schools here. And, oh, and that was, you know, 15 years ago. Now there's nine, maybe 10. So they've just, it's become a business. Oh, yeah. 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 And I think, I think like Eric said, you know, when, once we went, I think I was one of the last classes that did the 3000 hour program. Um, and then, and I remember it being a big deal when, uh, when the schools and the college came out and said they were going to do that. And, and part of it was so that, you know, we'd be on par with the other provinces that were regulated in the country. But, and I know part of the frustration was, well, why not, why didn't those provinces come up to 3000 rather than us going down to 2200? But yeah. I think like, in addition to what Eric said, you, now you've got, you're spending six months less time in school. So you've got six months less hands-on experience. You've got six months less review of information, six months less tutorials from you know good instructors uh that are maybe out helping you at outreaches and things like that so i, I think a lot of what eric said was right you, you're now coming out like a lot less experienced and maybe a lot less mature and ready to go on and 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 be as effective as you could be yeah one of the arguments that we hear a lot in the states you know and, and some of this may be also related to the way that massage is perceived differently is that that you know, there's a lot of practitioners who feel like they don't want to necessarily be perceived as a healthcare professional, and they really don't want to work in that model. They want to work, you know, more in a spa type of environment or something like that. And they just say, well, that's just way too much training time. It's costing me way too much money to go into that kind of training. So does that, was that argument pos uh, part of what, you know, drove some of these decisions of feeling people like people feeling like maybe they were spending too much time, too much money? I don't know. I don't, yeah. I don't think, I think, and this is, this is something that we've noticed and, 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 and I've noticed and, um, over the years is that how our profession in BC, where we live, views itself as they view themselves and, and most, most other provinces, I would say that are regulated because every, I don't know, it's like, I think in the States, every, every state has a different kind of regulatory requirement and hours or training, right? Is that mm -hmm. correct, Whitney? Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, there's, um, I think, 50 states. And I think right now we're up to something like 46 of them have, have state licensure. But the yeah. requirements range from, you know, around uh, most of them average at five to 650 hours. And then there's a couple that are up to 2,000. Right. But there's no clarification about what's in that 2,000 hours. So right. and it's very, yeah. very different. Yeah. So I would say, I would say like, so in, in the, the provinces here that are regulated and not, and only about half of them are, which means they have like a government body that like, like a licensing uh, body. 
the ones that are regulated, they, if you ask massage therapists there, and I'm generalizing here, but they, they, if you ask them how they view themselves, they would want to view themselves as a healthcare profession. Yeah. Uh, in line with like physical therapy and chiropractic and osteopathy and, and other other such similar professions. So I think if you viewed yourself as wanting to be like in the wellness industry and you just want to go like work in a spa or something, you don't need all the schooling. Yeah. But if you want to view yourself as a healthcare professional, I, I think you really should uh, to, to to be clarified or to call, call yourself that that's that title. I think you need more more education just to be yeah. online with all those other allied professions. So would you say that there's also a sense of people wanting to perceive themselves as as healthcare professionals in the unregulated provinces as well? Well, yes. I yeah, think so. definitely. I think so. I know that like and the, that was the reason for the drop in hours. It was it had way more to do with regulation across the country. Yeah. Um, to get those regulated provinces, it was so that Basically, they could approach government and say, we're all on par. We're all doing the same thing. Let's push yeah, and push right. and push. Yeah. Um, and I, since then, I think PEI has become regulated. So one more province. So, And then there's the whole thing of like how much tax we charge that is involved in that too. But, um, yeah. but the biggest thing was regulation. Right. One of the other things that we have been hearing a lot about for quite a long time, you know, and there's more discussion about it, you know, as, as time goes on here. In terms of, you know, we don't really have a good standard, uh, standardized educational curriculum for entry level training. You know, there's the number, like we said, like I said, you know, we have a number of hours in a lot of schools, but it's all over the map in terms of what they actually do there. But there's a lot of people here who've been feeling that massage should move to a traditional degree program in colleges or universities for those people that want to work more in a healthcare environment. So is there a same uh, or a similar type of push there to move towards academic degree programs in Canada? Yeah, and we were, we were very hopeful because um, a public college here in Victoria started a massage program a year or two ago. Um, and they teach a uh, bachelor of athletic therapy program. And we were hoping that that was going to push towards having a, a bachelor degree, you know, incorporated into massage. So there's, um, I think there's a lot of interest here in it from people, but I don't know how much the uptake is going to be um, because yeah. again, those schools are making a ton of money mm -hmm. with the way they're doing things now. So uh, I can't see them wanting to change, but. So would they make less money in a new model like that? I don't know. I, like if it became a four-year program, because like when we went to school, they would say it was similar to a four-year program because we worked right through summer and like we got a, I think a week off in the spring, a week off in the summer and two weeks at Christmas or something like that. Whereas a typical yeah. school takes a full summer off. Um, so I'm not sure. Um, I'd, I'm not sure how much Camosun's charging the athletic therapy program compared to the RMT program or if it's the same. I think they're very comparable. I, I, but I would say, I would assume though, that if you put it in a public system, I mean, the, the public uh, universities and colleges are all like, they get, they're funded uh, a good consistent or a good amount of them is, is funded by, by taxpayers. Yeah. yeah. Right. And then, and then the students kind of make up the rest of it. I'm pretty sure the commotion program is about 30 to 35,000, which is the same as the private the schools as well. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. I, I think the, the schools are going to make like, money. Yeah. Do you have any idea of how many schools are associated with like a traditional academic, you know, college or university versus freestanding proprietary massage schools uh, across across the country? I'm not sure across the country, but here I yeah. think Camosun's the only one that's yeah, a public one, school. The rest are all private. 
Or is Langara College, are they considered a private school? Yeah, actually, there's, I guess there would be two, because there's one called Langara College here, which is, it's a, it is a public university or public college, but they run the massage therapy program, I believe, out of what they call their continuing education department. Mm-hmm. Okay. So it's not part of the standard uh, kind of campus. It's it's like an extra add-on yeah. type thing. Yeah. So yeah, I, I know in, in Ontario, there's quite there is a handful of uh, public uh, institutions that do have massage programs, and they seem to be the ones that seem to have the best. Uh, at least when you when you look at kind of their their their, their programs, their curriculums, and look at some of the people that are running them. Like you actually have people with like masters and PhDs that are running those programs. And so I, I would I would make the assumption I don't know for sure, and I know some of the people that are involved in those things are are quite knowledgeable and quite passionate about advocating for promoting the profession. But I mean, if you have a province of Ontario with like I don't know, what, ten million people, and you've got like I don't know fifty massage schools or something, and two of them are really good, then mm-hmm. you know it's just a drop in the bucket. Yeah, yeah. Well, we certainly have run into that kind of problem here. I think a good bit in the states because the the largest you know majority of our schools are pro- proprietary, freestanding businesses as opposed to being know. associated with a major, you know, traditional academic training institution. And I think that's one of the things that's really halted the move towards academic degree programs. Is it just would cause all kinds of really logistical problems for a lot of those um, training institutions. Mm-hmm. And we have had, um, you know. Um, the, during the height of the boom of massage therapy schools in the country, this was sometime around 2005, 2006, we had, you know, upwards of 1,400 schools in this country. So um, wow. it's just, and, you know, the big problem is that really left us unable to uh, get good training in in those schools too. It's just very difficult to find, ad, you know, adequate adequate number of teachers for those for those programs. Yeah, and it makes it really hard, really hard to have any consistency about the education across the country when I know like quite often what happens here is like somebody teaches a course and they decide to step away and they just had all the course material to the new teacher coming in yeah. and then they take that and start teaching it again. So, you know, if you've got 1400 schools across the country, how do you know that you're consistently being taught? The students are being consistently taught the same thing to have right. regulation and things like that. Yeah. And that's I'm a problem too. To- yeah, go ahead. Eric. Oh, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. Uh, I, mean, I was just to say with what Jamie was saying there too. I mean, it's a problem when you have no stand. Uh, even if you have a standardized kind of competency document, which yeah. we have here in Canada, but how that document's interpreted is so different. Yeah. From school to school, or from instructor to instructor, you know, they get uh, the schools get given this kind of, you know, here's your competency document, and here's your guidelines for foundational knowledge. They call it. Uh, and then it basically it's up to the instructor to figure out well, how do I teach this material, you know, and, and and so what ends up happening is people are are not necessarily educated with uh, the best most kind of current uh, evidence or or best practices. They're they're it, it's like we're, they're being taught how to pass an exam, which yeah, I think yeah. is 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 the wrong mentality because it should be about well how can we best help those people that come to see us right yeah. people that 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 are seeking our care. You know, let, let's learn how to best help them rather than how do I pass this exam? I just yeah. think it's it's backwards thinking. Yeah. You know, and that brings up an interesting thought about this is that, you know, I've I've spent a lot of my career studying education in addition to all the other things in the massage world because I'm, I'm fascinated and passionate about good quality education. And so I get the whole idea with the competencies, and I'm very much behind that idea of we should be looking a lot more at outcomes than we are at just 
you know, butt in seat clock hours, which don't really tell us anything. But one of the problems that I think occurs with something like this, this move is the competencies themselves are, are a good idea. But if you don't have people who understand a lot of those more in-depth facets of education and how to build curriculum around competencies, Mm -hmm. you may end up doing a lot of what you're just talking about there. It's, it's, Yeah, yeah, totally. And, and, I, and I think that's exactly what, what's happening is because I'm not against the competencies either. I think it's just a, like you said, it's a matter of how they're applied or how they're mm-hmm. uh, educated, how they're how they're taught. I think yeah. that's the yeah. biggest problem. Yeah. When they're still still teaching a whole bunch of modality courses with outdated narratives, the competencies competencies don't really matter because then they're coming out and they're still 20 years behind. Yeah. Right. Another thing I'm curious about. This is something that's pretty significant here still in, in our country. I'm, I'm curious if it is the same way there that it seems like in the massage therapy world, because we don't come from a traditional academic um, environment through the university system, like a lot of other healthcare professions, we are still highly reliant on this kind of lineage model of, of teaching where there's, you know, oftentimes a central teacher that, you know, did something really significant. And then everybody is like a mentor underneath that teacher. And they teach that teacher's methodology more so than looking at traditional um, methods of content curriculum backed up by your research. Um, So do you think that that kind of, well, first of all, my question is that lineage model pervasive also in, in Canada? And then, you know, how does that impact education? Do you think? Yeah, I, th- I think it still does because we're just like I said, we're still teaching outdated narratives to these modalities within mm-hmm. class, and and quite often it's people that have taken, you know, X method and they're teaching it twenty years later with what they learned from, like you said, this person who developed a, a modality or whatever. That so that's still very pervasive up here. Yeah, yeah. I mean, oftentimes what you see in school is you see uh, like a note package that somebody created or they just basically taken like, oh, I took this weekend workshop or I took a yeah. series of uh, levels one through five with, you know, no names, but uh, <laughs> somebody, uh, some provider, and then they basically took that and they and, they, and now they're teaching a, a version of that to students and that becomes the, the curriculum. And yeah, it just gets passed on. Yeah. yeah. You know, I saw a good example of that. Um, one of your podcast episodes that I think was relatively early on, uh, you all did a, a focus on the SOAS. Um, <laughs> and um, you were asking the question, or like, where did all this obsession slash focus on the SOAS come from? And I have a at least theory idea of, I know where it kind of came from in my background was that two of my main massage school teachers had been exposed to somebody who was a very, um, you know, a heavy duty structural integration practitioner uh, trained mm-hmm. at the Rolf Institute. And the SOAS was just like the uh, holy grail muscle in structural integration in the 70s. The muscle so of the that soul. Seems, yeah, it was. And that seems <laughs> like that's that's a great example of how something like that has become almost mythical um, mm-hmm. just through that whole transmission process that doesn't necessarily get borne out when we start looking at a lot of, you know, biomechanical or neurophysiological research it just doesn't seem to be the kind of thing that that sometimes is made but that seems to happen so much when you have that kind of lineage tradition yeah i think i I think i had some teachers in college that learned from the same people that you're talking about because it was (laughs) it was preached the same way yeah we were we were all i think doesn't matter when you went to school i think so as has always been given a huge emphasis because 
you know, it, it's like goes that last, uh, our last, the most recent podcast that Jim and I did about beliefs. science versus beliefs is there's a strong belief and it just gets passed on. But even like you said, Whitney, when you look at the neurophysiological or the biomechanical stuff, it doesn't support it. But people have this belief that something is really important and they don't really yeah. care what the, about the factual nature of it, mm-hmm. you know, uh, and that, and that, that creates a problem in our profession, right? Where we see a lot of this, uh, unhelpful kind of banter and, and, um, camps that people put themselves into, you know, they identify by, I'm a psoas therapist, for example, kind of thing, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, and then any challenge to that is a challenge against them. And then it creates, uh, you're, you end up arguing dogma and then people don't, and you're not actually helping people. You're just arguing with each other. And I think that's a, that's a, that's a problem that we see anyone that spends too much time on social media, like, like Jamie and I do. Yeah, <laughs> and you'll never, ever, for lack of a better term, win an argument when you're arguing dogma because the yeah. people just shut yeah. down and it doesn't, it doesn't yeah. go anywhere. Yeah, you know, I find that fascinating just that we have this, you know, part of it is part of a larger overall social culture that we seem to be, you know, trying to struggle through right now with this whole um, thing of tribalism and just, you know, fundamentalists on certain types of um, theories or models or or, you know, gurus that people are, are still bowing down to. And it just, you know, people take it so personally. I'm just like, this is really interesting. Like you, you know, when I'm confronted with something that confronts my existing belief system or thoughts or ideas, I like to try to stop and think about it and think, "Hmm, wow, that's interesting. Let me think about that. And it's caused me a lot of challenge many times because there's a lot of things that I know I've, I've taught for years and things that I've written in books that are going to be out there forever that now are just wrong, you know? Yeah. And, um, I feel like, you know, people get really attached to certain types of narratives to the point of feeling like, um, it's almost like you're attacking their religion kind of thing yeah. sometimes. Yeah. It's exactly the way it feels. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. We did a, um, a little while ago, we did one where we talked about some of the hate mail that we've gotten. And I remember this one person, they, the mail they sent me, they basically were saying, how dare I ever question some of these people that were like the founders of a certain modality uh-huh. that like the gall that I would have to question that they were wrong or that what yeah. they, and the, like, but it's just like what you're saying, right? It's almost like a religion that when it gets confronted, they shut down the conversation and they don't want to advance with it. So it, it's, yeah. it's strange. Yeah. Yeah. Somebody posted something one time on a Facebook that I think it may have been uh, Jason Erickson. I don't know if you know uh, Jason. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You guys probably ran into him at the San Diego yeah. Uh, yeah. summit, but uh, um, I think it might've been him that posted it. But anyway, he was talking about one of these long Facebook threads that was getting into this and he said, you know, sometimes I'm in the middle of getting ready to write a response to this kind of stuff. And I just think, nah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) If you do, you're going to be stuck there for the next few days responding. Yeah. Yeah, That one's going to go. I'm just going to let that one go. Yeah. Uh, And I have to remind myself oftentimes to the, saying or whatever it is that uh, it's not at all sensible to try and engage in a logical argument with somebody who didn't use logic to get to their point yeah. of view in the first place. Yeah. And well, that's, that's, that's really true. Yeah. Yeah. So that's brilliant. Yeah. So um, I want to uh, talk about a couple of things, you know, Eric, you mentioned that you had done this master's degree at UBC and I have to tell you, I have college envy. You know, I almost went to that program many, many years ago because it looked really fascinating um, and I'm I'm curious about your experience with that in, in terms of how much of the kinds of stuff that you learned in that program or studied there 
do you think um, are, is really relevant and would really help push our profession forward if that kind of stuff was was more available to massage therapists? And do you see a way in which that might become more prevalent to us through additional continuing education, that sort of thing? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I loved it. I mean, it's I've it's been a couple of years now. If you'd asked me two years ago, I would have said, "Don't do it. What a waste of time." I was burnt out. I was, but no, it, it's it was really good. Like I, and, and when I reflect on it, I gained uh, so much information, so much knowledge. Uh, a lot of the the skills that I've learned about kind of uh, research and critical thinking and kind of, you know, being reflect, reflective on your own learning and asking better questions and, and all that kind of academic stuff. I, yeah. I never would have, uh, I never would have had it if I hadn't gone through that program. Like I felt it really helped uh, refine kind of my thinking and my, and my abilities to, to teach. It was really good for, um, for the, the education that and the teaching that I do. Uh, but as a general, if you're just a practicing clinician, if you just want to go to work every day and you're just working one-on-one with people, it's it's not it's not essential mm -hmm. because it's it's all kind of big idea big picture uh, academic research stuff. Uh, yeah. So I think if you want to be an educator, if you want to be involved in researchers, or you want maybe you want to be like a like some type of thought leader or advocate for the profession, uh, I think it's it's extremely extremely important because I think it really provides a, a great base of knowledge for that. Hmm. But if you're just somebody that just wants to just go to work every day and then you have no interest in that stuff, which is fine, right? Because mm -hmm. All professions have that, right? And physical therapists, yeah. they've got PhD programs and some of them never work with patients and some of them, all they want to do is go work with patients all day. So I think if you, it's not necessary, but I think it's important for more of us to have a higher level education. I think that program is something, I know a number of massage therapists here in BC and in Ontario that have done that program because there's a few of them in Canada. Uh, and I think it's been really, really good for, for those that have gone through it. Yeah. Well, I certainly do think too that some of the, the people who are, you know, leading the pack as educators and trying to carve a path for the other people who are going to be your students down the road, that's that's certainly advantageous uh, to you. You know, I had two halfway completed master's programs that I never finished, one in psychology and another one in sports medicine and bio, biomechanics. But they were both really valuable learning experiences, and they were, you know, both of them were interrupted for other fascinating educational experiences. And I've always kind of abided by. There's a, a saying from Carl Rogers, the uh, psychologist one time said, don't let school get in the way of your education. And that's always been kind of a good <laughs> motto for me. Like I'll use it when it looks valuable and, and relevant. Uh, and there are other times when I'm not going to get, I'm not going to be, um, you know, taken down too, too much by the obsession with it. But uh, I do think that kind of thing helps massage therapist or practitioners, whatever your field is, see things more broadly. Oftentimes that's one of the more, more valuable aspects of really getting a bigger picture. That's one of the things that I got out of, of that training a great deal. So. And I would um, say the same thing, big, the big picture ideas stuff was, was really, really quite profound for me. Yeah. 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 So, well, I want to shift gears a little bit here. We've been you know, talking a good bit about uh, education and education strategy. I know you guys have, have been teaching a lot of different, um, topics and things like that. And I want to kind of pick your brains a little bit on, on a few of those things. One of them, of course, that's kind of near and dear to my heart and focus and, and attention for years has been about assessment uh, strategies and, you know, trying to get better at assessing musculoskeletal problems. And, um, you know, I've had kind of a 
uh, a difficult time making some of these adjustments in light of a lot of the current research that's come out about, you know, how accurate are some of the methods that we've used for assessment. And, and like, you know, when a lot of the information was coming out about, you know, pain science and things like that, I started questioning like, well, is this stuff even relevant? You know, is it necessary? Or do we just think that, you know, all this pain problems have to do with, you know, neural processing in the brain and that sort of thing. But uh, I, I, I'm curious about about this because I still think there's a lot of value in the clinical reasoning process and the efforts to try to identify the nature of certain uh, soft tissue pain and injury problems. One the, but one of the questions I wanted to start with here was um, there's been a lot of discussion lately about, um, you know, the use of assessment, uh, special orthopedic tests and assessment and how much energy should we put into this? And, you know, I heard a, a lot of people talk about when they talk about assessment in their training programs, they say, we learned our assessments, talking about them as if they are a thing that you learn like particular skills like special orthopedic tests were what they were learning as assessments. And to me, assessment has always been a lot more about the clinical reasoning process and the systematic gathering of information from all different facets of our client interaction. But when we look at a lot of these special orthopedic tests, they don't have such great reliability in, in a lot of the research nowadays. And it's like, what are your thoughts on should we keep teaching this stuff? Should we keep using it? Um, you know, where do, what do you all think about um, the relevance of that for a lot of what soft tissue practitioners are doing? I, I think there's still a relevance to it. Um, you know, a lot of the research has come out and shown us that they're, <clears throat> they show a lot more sensitivity over specificity. So a lot of them, we were told we're a specific test to see if this tendon or this muscle or this thing was having an issue. But now, and Jamie, could you, if I can interrupt you for a second, for those people who don't really know that distinction or what that means, can you explain a little bit about sensitivity and specificity, what you're, what that tells us about those? Sure. So like a lot of those tests, so let's just say, um, let's look at like speeds test, which I think was for bicepital tendonitis. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So that we were told that that was a specific test that would show that specifically this person had bicepital tendonitis. Um, whereas a lot of the research now has shown us that many of those orthopedic tests don't show us anything specific, but they do show us that the area is sensitized. Mm -hmm. So there's a sensitivity there. And, and a lot of the tests have been shown to be provocative. So actually causing pain. Um, whereas I've started to look at it differently. I just look at it as as though it's another way, another form of graded exposure where I can get a person to do a movement and then gradually move into that movement a little bit more until they can finally do more of said movement. And you can actually show them like between the beginning of your appointment to the end of your appointment, how they can actually move in a better range compared to when you started. So yes. I, I think there's still a value to it, but again, we need to change the narrative behind it and not tell them that they have bicipital tendonitis when uh, that's not what it's actually telling us. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Eric, what yeah. are your thoughts on that? Yeah. I mean, I, I never want to throw away everything. Like you never want to say always or never get rid of something or always hold on to it. Uh, I think there's a value to them. I think that the, the emphasis though on the, the value of special tests and the orthopedic tests is, uh, I think it's, it's, it's oversold, uh, especially when we look at the research, right. Which says, yeah, like most of these things are provocative, to a specific area, but where they're not always uh, specific to a uh, particular structure, uh, you know. And I joke we always make when we're, when we're teaching. And now this does, this doesn't apply to all tests because some tests are really good, right? 
Yeah. Like some tests, they are like, yeah, you have an ACL, the Lockman. It's like, yeah, it's, yeah. you know, you know, it's, 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 uh, you, you probably have an ACL tear, but sometimes like say you use the shoulder one, we always make a joke. Someone comes in they got like, it hurts with 90 degrees of shoulder abduction. And then you put them through a whole bunch of special tests to say, yes, it does hurt when you abduct your shoulder 90 degrees and you've just done a bunch of tests to make it, to piss it off and to prove that they're not lying to you. You know, I think like some, sometimes we can, like it's they can be over overused when you don't really need to right like well show me what it looks like when you when you reach the top shelf ah that hurts do you need to really go and and target to try and is that is that biceps is that supraspinatus is that a you know a um you know a labral tear whatever you like when really i think when it comes down to it the the treatment and the management is still very similar right massage it move, move it, it load it try and make it feel better i, I think so, in some of those cases you know, you don't need to be as specific. Uh, yeah. But in certain cases, I mean, we could probably go through each region of the body and find out there's a good cluster for tests in one area. But yeah, they have value, yeah. I think, to show people, you know, obviously to rule out red flags in certain cases. And they also have, mm -hmm. I think in some cases, you can use them to say, actually, you know what? Look, you're really strong here. This is safe. You're okay. Mm -hmm. Look, I've done all these tests and you're fine. You know, you can, so you can flip that script and, and, and uh, turn it into a positive rather than just this provocative mm -hmm. negative situation. Yeah. Um, you know, that's interesting to you. You bring up the comment of clustering them. I do think that's a value in, in a lot of instances is using a group of those procedures and seeing, saying, you know, now does the overall big picture that I'm seeing point to something in particular that might give you more information than just a, a single test alone. Okay. Um, and I was reading an, uh, an article about this the other day. Let me see. I'll put pull this up and uh, make sure we put that in the show notes. But this was um, an argue, uh, uh, article from about 2017 from the British Journal of Sports Medicine from uh, Hegedus, and they said the uh, title of the article was uh, "Orthopedic Special Tests and Diagnostic Accuracy Studies: House Wine Served in Very Cheap Containers." That, <laughs> that's an interesting concept. I got to love what it. This is about. I love it. Yeah. Um, and so I, I read this and there was some really good points. It was not a long article. It's just more of a, you know, kind of a, an editorial thing. Chad Cook was one of the authors who's done lots of work in, in the orthopedic testing world. Yeah. But uh, one of the most pertinent things that really came out of there uh, reading that is that I, and I think this is really spot on correct, is that so many people have used those procedures to try to make it simpler to do an evaluation. Mm -hmm because they can just sort of jump to while doing a couple of orthopedic tests. Oh, you've got, you know, lateral epicondylitis or you've got, you know, denosynovitis or whatever is the, you know, condition du jour for them. Um, and it makes it so that they don't, re don't really have to go through and be that comprehensive and thorough about their evaluation. Um, and I have always been a big advocate about the importance of looking for patterns amongst all different facets of active movement and passive movement, resisted movement, and any pertinent orthopedic test information, icing on the cake maybe, but people put a lot of stock in those, I think too soon and too early to, you know, try to jump to a, an understanding of what's happening so they don't go through a thorough evaluation. Yeah, yeah. I, I would agree. I think when we, when we learned special tests in school, it was, you learned how to identify the, I think remember a term, the term we were taught was the root cause of the dysfunction or the root cause of the pain. And then if you could identify that, then you could treat it specifically and you could, you know, release it or, you know, break it down, any scar, whatever it was, you're taught this very fix it mindset. 
which as we know that that singular kind of causal idea isn't well supported. Yeah. It's, you know, it's tempting because of the allure of it um, that really makes us be relevant and and a real central part of the treatment process and maybe even a, a necessary or needed part of the treatment process. Come to me, I'm the knowledgeable expert that's going to help fix you sort of thing. And uh, that's alluring. You know, a lot of people can kind of really get, get latched onto that. But I think it it sort of disempowers clients sometimes to really look at the bigger picture of what seems to be happening for them. Yeah, I think it, I think in some cases it does more harm than good. Too, you know, because people are coming in and they're given this diagnosis of something that isn't really going on, and then every time they feel some discomfort or some pain, they associate it with what that practitioner told them that you know their X is out or whatever because they've done these provocative tests and and yeah. led them down a, a line to believe that there's something wrong that isn't. Yeah, well, one of the things that they mentioned in this um, uh, the article, the Hegedus article, was that you know the the evaluation of you know a lot of the uh, books now and other papers and things that are publishing information on accuracy of orthopedic tests are trying to come up with these evaluation numbers of their specificity and sensitivity and that's in comparison to certain other methods that supposedly are a more of a gold standard of the nature of this like either x-rays or you know surgical exploration or whatever but they were highlighting in this article that a lot of the methods that were used as the gold standard to compare against are not accurate themselves. And so yeah. trying to compare these procedures to something that's inaccurate just magnifies the problem in many instances of finding, you know, d- a degree of accuracy there. So yeah. no real gold yeah. standard there at all. Yeah. So, so on a, you know, continue this a little bit further down another line too, talking about research stuff. Cause I know you guys emphasize a great deal on your um, podcast and you're teaching the importance of us being, um, evidence-informed practitioners and trying to really focus on a lot of the, the research space for what we're doing. Of course, one of the big problems that we have in our field is that we don't have a really strong base of research supporting a lot of what we do. So how do you kind of um, encourage people to move in the direction of being more sort of evidence-informed in their practice when we don't have a lot of good resource evidence in many instances to support some of the things that we're doing. Any suggestions or ideas that you have for, for how people should go about that? That's a whole other podcast. (laughs) (laughs) I could, I could talk about that. I could talk about that all day. Yeah. Uh, uh, Yeah. But you're right there. There's such a paucity in in the massage, like massage therapy specific research. Like we just Mm -hmm. don't have that academic culture where we're just, where we don't have people in, in colleges and universities that like as a research chair pumping out, studies uh, about what it is that we do uh, so that that is a huge barrier uh, but what we can do because rather than just being like oh put our hands up in the air let's just forget about it there's nothing we can do we're just going to follow this kind of lineage model and this kind of historical model I, I think what we need to do is we need to start looking at the research that's closest to what we do right so we know there's a wealth of other research out there by other allied healthcare professionals particularly the physical therapy uh, right where they have lots of stuff on manual therapy and touch mm-hmm. and movement and exercise there's lots of psychological journals out there um and and, and where people are looking at like the, the the interactions between healthcare providers and and the, and the patient or the client uh there's a lot of stuff i think that really in we can uh use it to inform and and uh how we how we practice and and the narratives we use and, and the way we work and i also think that if we look and this is something that I, i've done a lot of 
doing because it's interesting to me is if you if you really look at a lot of the neurophysiology so peripheral spinal brain neurophysiology and you look at the mechanics literature you look at all the literature on, on pain uh, other stuff that's you know on exercise and movement and you look at things like these contextual factors and all the research that's out there in all these other fields i think we can easily uh, extrapolate a lot of that and apply it to what we have because we don't yeah. have that ourselves mm-hmm. but i think we need to be aware of that stuff. And, and that really forms a lot of the stuff that, that I teach and a lot of the stuff that Jamie teaches and things we talk about in our podcast is like, if we just looked at massage therapy specific things, we would have a very narrow uh, evidence base. That pool is pretty thin. It's yeah, pretty it's very shallow. Thin. Yeah. Pretty, yeah. But it's huge if we look at all the stuff that really is yeah. consistent with what we do, right? So rather than just the the, the hands-on aspect about the which there is research that shows kind of what you do and don't do with your hands and what's happening mechanically and tissue and neurophysiologically. Uh, but there's all the other stuff that, that the, you know, I think is really important and, and can really, we can use that to our advantage, I guess, so to yeah. speak. Yeah. There's yeah. no reason that we can't piggyback off what other professions are doing. Right. And even if you look at, I mean, I got in a kind of a debate online a little while ago, but, between evidence-based or evidence-informed and evidence-informed piggybacks a lot of their research off evidence-based stuff. So, I mean, it happens everywhere else, right? So there's no reason that, just like Eric said, we can't piggyback off what physios are doing and psychology is doing and social work is doing because it's all, what they're doing is all about the person in front of them. Yeah. And that's really what we want to apply, right? Yeah. And, you know, one of the things that I think is so crucial that we're missing a lot, and I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on this too, is the development of critical thinking skills to evaluate the quality of, of some research because you know there's a lot of stuff out there that's just because something's published doesn't mean it's first of all accurate mm-hmm. uh, and or really even good research and and so you know we need to get people to become more research literate and have some critical thinking skills to determine like is this really is this telling us something significant or is is there really good methodology here and that's that's kind of difficult to to get sometimes i think i remember hearing this story i th- think it might have been greg layman who told me this story one time this was at, down in San Diego pain summit in fact um he said if it was him i think it was him that said this you know so you know how uh, you know how they do a lot of biomechanical research uh they walk into the lab and they say okay let's see we got a force plate we got a ball we got um you know this kind of an inclinometer here and we're gonna like know what can we make up to study that will use these devices that we have. And a lot of that is because the pressure in some of these research institutions for publications is so high that it forces you just to go put something out there just because you need to get a paper published and whether or not it's really good stuff is not always, not always the case. Exactly. I mean, that's hundred percent. I think I've heard Greg tell that story before too. And uh, I think that's I think it's what he did when he did his uh, a lot of his biomechanics research. Yeah. They had they used what was in the room that they had access to. So yeah, yeah. But they came up with some good stuff, and they, they must have yeah. good stuff in the room. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> but yeah. that's a that's a really good point you make though, Whitney. Is that it, you know uh, thinking about you know whether you know I think it's more important for educators rather than your average. I shouldn't say average. It sounds like uh, rather than your clinician. That's just like we said earlier, just somebody who goes to work every day and, and then they, they have no interest in teaching. They just want to, you know, uh, but I think if, if, if you are taking the role as an educator or as a thought leader, or researcher, teacher, however you want to 
label yourself in the industry. I think those uh, you have a, a an ethical responsibility and a moral responsibility to really have those kind of critical thinking skills, understanding uh, logical errors, um, you know, learning about how to. Uh, you know, analyze papers and, and, and critique methodology and, and all that stuff is so, so important because once you understand that, it really helps you to kind of weed through all of the, uh, the nonsense that's out there and, and you can really choose the, the good from the bad, so to speak. Yeah. So do you yeah. have any suggestions for that, uh, that, again, we'll say, we'll call this person average practitioner, a person who's out there in the trenches working all day, doesn't have a lot of time to spend on the computer delving into stuff. Uh, like some people might, you know, suggestions or ideas. How does that person go about getting better at those things, getting better at, at the critical thinking element, getting better at, you know, even finding stuff or knowing what to read or knowing how to interpret things? Any suggestions or ideas you've come across that have been particularly helpful uh, for you all in doing that? I think practice. for, yeah, practice. But I, <laughs> I think also just knowing what, um, like the, the research pyramid almost that, you know, case yeah. studies are at the bottom and then you look at, uh, systematic reviews and things that are at the top. So if, you know, if you want to start with systematic reviews where they've looked at thousands of papers and extrapolated the most important things from those papers and how it applies to us, that's probably your best bet to start. Yeah. Um, I know usually when I'm writing a blog post, if there's information I'm trying to find, I'm usually going to look at systematic reviews first to find out what the best information is on it. And then once you're used to that, you can kind of work down and then start understanding how other research papers work. And, you know, and if you see that, uh, somebody's doing research on a certain topic and they teach about that topic or they have a, a program around that topic, it's probably not going to be very good research. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's, that's the important thing though, is, is understanding the, uh, being able to judge the quality of the research. And it takes, like I said, it, I was kind of joking. It takes practice. So you have to, you have to really put time into it. Just like you would mm -hmm. put time in massage school, learning your anatomy and your physiology and practicing your different, uh, you know, palpation and movement and all your different techniques. It takes time and practice. And I think when, if you want to be more, uh, critical uh, and research aware. It takes practice doing that. Uh, you know, and the, the key thing is what I learned early days for me was um, the first thing that I found that was really important was, was the, the concept of biological plausibility. What we see a lot of in the massage and the manual therapy is we see people making these um, outlandish these big, claims. These, these big outlandish <laughs> claims on what's happening, and so what they're looking is they're they're maybe they did a specific treatment and there was an outcome that was favorable on how they measured it, but but then they they make a mechanistic claim for that outcome. And what mm -hmm. I found for me is once I really understood the kind of the physiology and and the plausibility of stuff, that really really helped to kind of filter through uh, whether a study was valid or not. Yeah. That was that was a big one, and and also and just spending your surrounding yourself with people that that are aware of this stuff, right? And and asking questions uh, is 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 really important. You know, I mean, I have some of the things I'm involved with, and some of the the mentoring I do it, it involves this exactly th this exact thing is you know just helping people kind of make sense of the evidence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I um, wrote a blog post a couple years back on something called fantasy physiology is just, you know, well, I've read it, that. it just seems so uh, pervasive sometimes just, and some of the things that people come up with is like, I mean, that's a pretty <laughs> great imagination that you got to like <laughs> making the stretch that like I'm taking and, you know, torquing somebody's 
and pelvis has got this, you know, 25 degree range of motion, you know, in, in, uh, moving in and out. Like uh, I've never seen a pelvis move like that, but that's pretty amazing that you can do that just with your hands. You know? um, but it's, it's both frustrating. And uh, at the same time, you know, I, I get that a lot of it just comes from lack of really having that sort of a critical perspective about of what we're doing and, and challenging some of the things that some of the supposedly knowledgeable folks have been teaching uh-huh. and telling us for years. So um, the big takeaway I'd like to tell people is that always, 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 you know, question authority. And if somebody doesn't like you questioning them, then you want to question where you're spending your time with them. It may not be so wisely used perhaps. <laughs> Which is great. Cause that's every single time we teach, we're like, please question us. We're, we're yeah. not an authority. And sometimes the answer might be, I don't know. But we always say, if you're going to take a continuing education course, you should feel free to question whoever the instructor is. And if they're not happy with that, or if they're not cool with that, you shouldn't be taking that course. Yeah. 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 Be skeptical all the yeah. time. I, I don't believe in anything. I'm so skeptical of everything. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, you know, and the other thing I was going to say about this too, is that I know social media gets a you know a pretty bad rap for a lot of stuff, and let's face it, they do a lot of real they do a lot of stuff badly, and there's just a lot of really not so great things that happen there. But the flip side of that is, any day you can open up your computer and go to a Facebook group and have a discussion with some of the world's leading clinicians and researchers all over the world on some mm-hmm. of these groups, and to me, that's just an amazing capability. I mean, you know, when I first started in practice, the internet didn't exist. And I was going to the medical library and digging books off the shelves and trying to find, you know, journal articles and stuff. When, you know, oh, there's this great article I want to go read and you go look and then somebody's taking the journal off the shelf. And like, you know, where do you get that? You There's nowhere else to get it. And you know, now people don't realize how easy it is to get great information so yeah. much more effectively than it used to be in, in the old days. <laughs> so... Um, well, that's, uh, again, we can kind of like run off, uh, and on and on and on, on so many of these topics, but, um, I think we've hit on some of the big things that I wanted to zero in on anything that you guys want to, uh, uh, wrap up with here on, on any of these topics that we've, we've talked about final thoughts for folks. I don't, I don't really have any. I was just going to say, thanks for having us on. All right. I don't know if Eric's got any. Yeah, yeah no, I, I was going to say thanks again, Whitney, for having us here. This was, this was great. I hope uh, people enjoy this episode. And if they want to hear more from us, they can obviously, like you said before, we have our own, our own podcast. So check us out with the Massage Therapist Development Initiative. Or we, we've talked about some of these things and talked about some of the other stuff as well. But uh, maybe we should get you on our on our podcast yeah. soon, Whitney. Yeah, love to you do know, that. I think uh, yeah, we'd love get, uh, it's nice to have uh, perspective from educators and clinicians from other parts of the world. So I think you have a, a unique experience, which I think would be, would be great to, to share on, uh, to our listeners as well. So yeah, yeah. appreciate that. And so where can people find out more about you guys? I know you mentioned the podcast name, but you've got like websites and other resources and things like that. And you've got classes, training programs, things like that. So where can people find out more about what you guys are doing? Uh, go to, we each have a website. Mine's the mtdc.com. So T H E M T D C.com. Um, all the courses that we teach are listed on there. Um, I've got my membership and some online courses and things that are listed on there as well as uh, weekly blog articles that come out and then Eric's got his own. Yeah. Yeah. My website's ericpurvis.com. So E R I C 
P-U-R-V-E-S. And I have a listing of all the courses I teach on there. And same thing, I've got uh, self-directed online stuff as well as I have a membership community uh, for people uh, to to learn together. And uh, yeah, um, I have blogs on there as well. So, you know, check out my site and, and reach out to me. I'm always happy to answer questions and provide resources or support for people if they want. And if they want to take any courses, we'd be happy to have them. We're doing our courses because of COVID. We've been doing majority of them uh, online via webinar via Zoom. And uh, we've kind of tweaked them to make that work. And it seems to be going pretty well. So I can't complain too much. Yeah. All right. Excellent. So, well, thank you all uh, both for coming today. It's been great uh, having a conversation here with you. I'm really uh, glad you were able to take some time out, and we hope uh, listeners got some good stuff out of there as well. So thank you both here. I would also like to say a thank you to our closing sponsor, Books of Discovery. They've been a part of massage therapy education for over 20 years. Thousands of schools around the world teach with the textbooks, e-textbooks, and digital resources. And in these trying times, this beloved publisher is dedicated to helping educators with online-friendly digital resources that make instruction easier and more effective in the classroom or virtually. Books of Discovery likes to say learning adventures start here. They see that same spirit here on the Thinking Practitioner podcast, and they're proud to support our work, knowing we share the mission to bring the massage and bodywork community enlivening content that advances our profession. You can check out their collection of e-textbooks and digital learning resources for pathology, kinesiology, anatomy, and physiology at booksofdiscovery.com, where Thinking Practitioner listeners can save 15% by entering Thinking at checkout. So thanks again to all our sponsors. We uh, say a special thanks to all our listeners as well. Great to have you all here. You can stop by our sites for show notes, transcripts, and any extras. You can find that over on my site at academyofclinicalmassage.com. And from Till on his site, he will be back in our next episode here. You can find that over on advanced-trainings.com as well. If you've got questions or things you'd like to hear from us, please send us an email. We'd love to hear from you at info at thethinkingpractitioner.com or you can look for us on social media as well. You can uh, follow the podcast on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, wherever you happen to be listening. If you get a chance, rate us on Apple Podcasts. It does help other people to find the show. Uh, any And anywhere else you happen to listen, you can tell a friend. And of course, if you are unable to find us in any of those locations, you can tap out TTP on a 17th century Morse code device and you can find us there. All right, ladies and gentlemen, it's been a pleasure. We'll talk to you next time.